Dr. Moon's basis was meridian therapy. Balance the channels. All you have to do. Later, when I was in practice, my first year of practice, I called him up from Madison. I said, Dr. Moon, Dr. Moon, I got a patient with diabetes type 1. Special points, anything I should know? And he says, I taught you. Well, I said, no, 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 you never, you never talked about diabetes type 1. What do I do? Huh? This is a serious case. He said, I told you. Balance the channels. And clunk, he hangs up the telephone. <laughs> I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. Whenever I'm with patients and I find myself saying, air quotes here, in Chinese medicine, I know that I'm going wide of the mark. I'm about to educate them on something or invite them to consider my belief system. Usually, I see it as a failure on my part to explain the situation in a way that they might understand it from their own experience or their own point of view. I think of all the times I've had someone quote me the Bible. I know that they're well-intended, but I've already cranked up some resistance along with feelings of annoyance and more than a small amount of dismissal. Generally speaking, patients aren't in my office to learn Chinese Medicine 101. I found it less than helpful to tell people how they fit into a Chinese medicine box and more connective to be able to take my ideas of Chinese medicine and let that guide me as I tell them a story that connects with the one that they're already telling themselves. Stories are powerful and the story of the workings of Chinese medicine, it's helpful. It's helpful because it's connective. It sees relationships in the body-mind that you don't find in other places, and it gives us a wide access to the pattern language of nature, climates with their flora and fauna, seasons with their influence, and how physicality, emotions, and thoughts are all intertwined. There's a lot that we can say about Chinese medicine without ever saying the words Chinese medicine. Of course, in clinic, I do at times say it, but more often I catch myself and pause when I find myself wanting to start a sentence with that phrase and look instead for another way to share what I'm thinking. As a practitioner, my job is to have the capacity to enter my patient's world. After all, any answers that they need to find, that's where they're going to find them. Asking them to join me in my world, asking them to think about things from my Chinese medicine perspective, it's got a hint of religion to it that I find uncomfortable. When my explanation of their condition begins with, in Chinese medicine, I think I've done less than a stellar job. It might be okay, but it's not my best work. I'd like to be good enough with my Chinese medicine thinking that I can translate it on the fly into a patient's experience so that our conversation doesn't miss a beat and they get the concept or idea that I'm trying to convey because it slides into their cognitive model right alongside something else that they understand. And so 
It doesn't get rejected as foreign, exotic, or strange. I suspect it's a higher level gong fu to talk about Chinese medicine without saying that you're talking about Chinese medicine. What if you approached your interest in Chinese medicine free of the concern of failure? If you leaned on the feelings of being engaged and was playful enough to take in stride what worked and what didn't? I've found with many people who were there in their early days, as our profession was emerging into the mainstream, there was not so much of a concern for how will I make a living as there was for how can I learn this medicine? That was certainly the case for Jake Fratkin, and in this conversation, we hear about all kinds of things that you would not associate with learning or practicing medicine, and yet, they were vital experiences that contributed to his becoming a practitioner. We'll hear more about all of this in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members, All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face, so subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to janeapp switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code 
Geological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Jake Fratkin, welcome back to Geological. Hello there. Glad to be back. Thank you. Wonderful to have you. So today, this is part of our history series. We're going to take a little trip in the Wayback Machine. And what I'd like to dial us back to is the moment, if you can remember it, or sort of moments, when acupuncture first came into your awareness, first came into your consciousness. What was going on in your life? What was, and what was going on in our country? Like, what was on the news? And what were the things people were talking about? And for that matter, I suspect you were a young man. What kind of angst and trouble were you facing that somehow acupuncture, it pinged something in you? What was going on back then? I was on a, somebody's kitchen table, and I picked up the newspaper, and it said, James Reston has acupuncture for emergency appendectomy. 1972. Do you remember this? Not really, because I was just barely in high school. I remember hearing about it later, but if I heard about it, it didn't stick at all. It was a big moment in the United States because nobody had ever heard of acupuncture. It was not on the radar. Whereas in Europe, England and France, it was well established. Acupuncture was being taught to medical doctors. Medical doctors were using acupuncture starting in the mid-1950s. But America did not hear about it till James Reston, a columnist for New York Times, went to China with Nixon. I remember Nixon being in China and that being a huge deal. And of course, as a, you know, a kid and kind of liberal, I'm like, Nixon, I hate Nixon. But like, whoa, he's in China. That's kind of cool. How am I, how am I going to parse that? <laughs> yeah, well, James needed emergency appendectomy, and they did it with acupuncture analgesia. And he talked about it because he was a big reporter, and he talked about it before, during, and afterwards. And it just put acupuncture all over the map. And for me, who I was in my life, that was a big moment. I said, what is acupuncture? What is this? This is amazing. It just totally caught your attention. Totally. Not only did it just grab my attention, but it really, if I always look at my life as, a, as it's a sequence, you know, it's from beginning to end, it's a movie that's already been done. And this was the part of the movie where I got turned on to acupuncture as if it was meant to be. It was like the whole, the purpose of the movie was turn Jake Fracken on to oriental medicine. And this was the first switch. This was the first one. Actually, it was the second one. 
The first one was in fourth grade, and I'm helping my mother weed my yard, and there's a dandelion, and I pick up the dandelion root, and I bit into it, and it was extremely bitter. And I said, I bet this is a good medicine for something. <laughs> At four years old. Mm, that's bitter. That must be good medicine. For, yeah, 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 yeah. This must be good medicine. That's, that's Taraxacum pugonging. Our, our our common dandelion, and 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 that opened me up to plants have medicinal value. So this article in the New York Times opens me up to there is something out there called acupuncture, and that I had intended to be a medical doctor. I'd studied pre med. I was totally all in all the way go since fourth grade. I knew I was going to be a medical doctor. I just didn't know what kind, and uh, but what happened in real life? By 1970, I hated studying for the MCATs. I said, this is not me. This is not me. I don't give a shit about gases, and I don't give a shit about being able to evaluate evidence-based research. It's not who I am. So I let it go, and I stayed in in basically, what would the field be? I was studying you know, vertebrae anatomy. I was interested in biology. I was interested in evolution. And so I got detracted or distracted from trying to go to medical school into just staying with biology. And I went off and studied. I got involved with a group studying primate research down in the Caribbean for about a year and a half. That was very influential in my life. And that's in that in the course of all that is when I discovered James Reston. Primate research in the Caribbean. That sounds like part school, part vacation. It was mostly vacation. <laughs> My job was four hours a day. And so I had two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening. And outside of that is, do I want to go body surfing or do I want to go snorkeling? What's my choices today? Yeah, not bad. How old are you at this point? 22, maybe 24. Yeah, it's something like that. 20, yeah, 22, 23. Still in undergraduate school. No, done. 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 Yeah. So this is a job that you've got then? Yeah. My other hobby, which I still do deeply is photography. And so back then they wanted somebody to film the monkeys in the wild and in captivity. And, and I was the only person they knew that had any photo experience. So they gave me a lot of, they got a big Guggenheim grant they gave me money to go buy gear. And then they said, look, you want to do this for us? There's absolutely no pay involved. I mean, there was a little bit of pay, but really, and I said, yeah, I was 22 years old. Go to the Caribbean, film monkeys. I'm in, count me in. Sure. Adventure, and I made good friends, and it was a wonderful adventure, and I loved it. And it was all science. It was, it was still science. Life science. You're interested in life sciences. Exactly. Monkey behavior was very interesting, and I said, man, they're just like us, or we're just like them. We haven't evolved at all. <laughs> so, Look, we've made more tools than they have. Yeah, but they got more sex than we got. <laughs> if we're busy having sex, we wouldn't have time to make tools. That's right. Who wants to make tools? There's a nice little butt sitting right over there. I think I'm going <laughs> to. That was a lot of fun. But anyway, I was always interested in science. And uh, in, even in college, I got very interested in comparative uh, evolutionary type biology. It was too early to use the word evolution, but they just called it comparative vertebrate anatomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was, that was like the precursor to evolutionary biology, which is kind of a new field and very exciting. Totally. And I'm still fascinated by it. I read every article that comes on the news about discoveries. I love human migration. I love how we became who we are. 
you know, it's, it's fascinating, fascinating. Anyway, so I always had that scientific bent. But in fourth grade, I wanted to be a medical person. There's no question in my mind. It's just what's one am I going to do? I loved emergency medicine, tropical medicine, infectious medicine. You're in. I'm in. So you read this thing on acupuncture, and you go, yep, ping, 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 ding, 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 ding. Then what happens? I said, what is that? Uh, and I let it go. I let it go. I just, it was in the background. Okay. I didn't know there was nothing else after James Reston. There's nothing on acupuncture for several years. In uh, how did it go? I between monkey work, I hung out in a hippie commune in Virginia, which was fun. Which was fun, but it was aimless and shiftless, and I didn't know what I was doing with my life. I will backtrack a little bit to say I studied Chinese in college, and so I had a, I always had an interest in China. Now, how did I get into Chinese language? That's an interesting story because you have to know, Michael, that my wife is French. And because of her, I've become a French citizen. Because of her, I learned how to speak French. Because of her, I go to France every year. You know, it's a big part of my life, France. Well, here I am at the University of Wisconsin. It's wintertime, November. I'm taking French class. And the ice is on the inside of the windows. Because it's Wisconsin. And French classes at 7.30. And the alarm would ring, and I would just pull my covers over my head, you know. And six weeks into the course, I get a letter. If you don't do something about French class, you have to drop now or make up lost time. And if you don't do that, you have a language requirement that has to be fulfilled somehow this semester. So I wake up and I said, I got to take a language. I got to take a language. What's available at 11 o'clock? Chinese. I'm available at 11 o'clock. Chinese at 11 o'clock. I'm taking <laughs> The universe is weirdly generous, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. This opened up the door because the Chinese department was fascinating. This was a time when Chiang Kai-shek was in charge of Taiwan. You couldn't get into communist China. 1972, it was, options were limited. And I was very anti-Chiang Kai-shek. And I said, I don't want to study in Taiwan. But um, I started studying Chinese language. So eventually, I got three years worth of uh, classical and, and modern into my belt, which is a good foundation. It is a good foundation. It'll get you started. That's right. You really need five years, but but who's counting? So so I'd been studying Chinese. So then as a quasi-hippie in Virginia, I don't know, some a couple came through from California, where else, a man and a woman who were very attractive to each other, and they were into Tai Chi. And they showed me Tai Chi. They were doing a two-person Tai Chi set. And I said, that's beautiful. That's what I want to do. That's gorgeous. I love it. What is this? And so really my door into Oriental medicine was Tai Chi. And I really got into it and I wanted to learn it. And I started self-teaching Qigong on whatever level I could find it back then. I was just fascinated with it. And I asked myself, well, I'm a good Jewish boy from Philadelphia. I, what that means is you have to have a career. My, my father said to me, you have two choices. You can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor. That's it. You choose. He was a CPA. I had no talent in math. So that didn't work. And so I felt I got to have a job. How does a Tai Chi guy make money? And I said, they did medicine. They did oriental medicine. That's just what came through your consciousness. Like do some medicine with this. Well, if you're going to make a living. Well, you got to make a living. I mean, how is she going to pull shit off? Can't make a living doing Tai Chi. No way. I mean, some people have done it and more power to them. But for me, 
that said, okay, I got, that's what I got to do. I got to learn Oriental medicine. Now, how the hell do I do that? I don't want to go to Taiwan and China's. Okay. So look, Jake, I get it. You want to be a professional. You want to make a living at it. I'm going to make a living with Oriental medicine. Are there even schools of Oriental medicine? Do you actually know anyone doing Oriental medicine? I mean, where do you get this uh, cockamamie idea? I was at least doing medicine. <laughs> I said, how did Tai Chi teachers make money? They did medicine. They did, they did medicine. So a friend of mine who was in medical school, and I, later on I talked to him about this conflict because nobody knew what acupuncture was. I said, how will I make a living? He said, if you help people, you will make a living. He said to me, we're still very good friends. If you're helping people, they will pay for you and you will make a living. That's what he said. And it gave me the confidence. Just do it. My brother-in-law, who was a physician, said, Jake, you got a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> yeah, you did. Chutzpah. So I don't know nothing about nothing, but I said, I got to learn more Chinese language. I mean, that's, that's what I have to do. So I went back to University of Wisconsin, 1975, had put together the idea of doing a master's on the history of Chinese medicine. And have found some supporters at the university to help me with that in the Chinese department, the philosophy department, and the history of medicine department. I put together a combined proposal for a master's, which they jumped on. They loved it. Yeah, yeah. You're paving your own road here. Exactly. So then, as not luck, but karma would, would find it, I was introduced to a master Tai Chi teacher from Taiwan, his organization in Chicago. But he had a branch school in Madison, Wisconsin, and only the Chinese people were taking this from him. And these were my Chinese language professors who told me, well, if you're interested in Tai Chi, we, we have a Chinese group that studies with a guy from Chicago. We know a guy. We know a guy. We know a guy who knew a guy. And so, <laughs> so I get into that. This guy was a top master. Wei Sun Liao, he's just a top master of Qigong Tai Chi, you know. And uh, so I get into that. And there's another, there's two other students in this class who are also interested in Oriental medicine. So now there's three of us who want to learn Oriental medicine. One of them went on to become a physician. One of them went on to be a Tai Chi teacher. And, and one of them was me. And one of them said, hey, there's a Korean acupuncturist here in Chicago who's teaching acupuncture. Do you want to go? I said, absolutely. So, <laughs> so I met Inyan Moon. It just he was to acupuncture what Wei Liao was to Tai Chi. He was just like a 15th century monk dropped into America and very authentic. And just all he did was acupuncture. He didn't do herbs, but he also did Qigong. So the two teachers did Qigong. And Dr. Moon, 1975, I joined up with him and I studied with him for seven years, for seven years, not every day. He was in Chicago. I was in Madison. So I was going back and forth. Usually three or four days a week, I'd stay in Chicago and study with him. And the other two guys were too. So Moon kind of organized classes that we could go to. So we had sort of formal training with classes. And then we were all apprenticing to him. Now, I got a question here. When he's teaching you, this is very apprenticeship kind of thing. What kind of theory are you getting with this? Are you even getting theory? You're just watching him do stuff. Like, what was the basis of, of what he was teaching you? Dr. Moon's basis was meridian therapy. Balance the channels. All you have to do. 
later when I was in practice, my first year of practice, I called them up from Madison. I said, Dr. Moon, Dr. Moon, I got a patient with diabetes type one, special points, anything I should know. And he says, I taught you. I taught you. You idiot. I told you balance a channel. Well, I said, no, 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 you never, you never talked about diabetes type one. What do I do? Huh? This is a serious case. He said, I told you balance the channels and clunk, he hangs up the telephone. <laughs> So that, that has stayed with me ever since. I love it. I wasted seven years on you. <laughs> you know, I got him to do herbs. It, it worked out better. I mean, we had an ex So Dr. Moon, that was his thing, was meridian balancing. Doesn't matter what it is. Now, the other thing, Moon was very unique. He was, first of all, he was Korean. So he was trained basically by the Japanese who occupied Korea in his learning era, you know. That's really interesting. Yeah, the Japanese controlled Korea from 1905 to 1945. That was his era, and, and, and what he learned was Japanese acupuncture. But being Korean, he hated the Japanese. He didn't want to ever throw a dime to the Japanese. So he says, it's Korean. This is Korean. It's all Korean. Koreans invented moxibustion. Koreans invented acupuncture. This kind of Korean pride. Oh, my God. You know, it's, Jake, it's so amazing. Out of horrible circumstances, like your country's invaded, you know, by these, you know, aggressive folks. And yet he found a whole livelihood and a way of bringing it down and teaching it to other people as well. It's so weird how stuff unwinds itself through history. He was special. He was special. Wow. Lucky you. Yeah. But see, Korea was open to the whole idea of meridian therapy because it was classical acupuncture. It was acupuncture before mainland China. You know, it was acupuncture pre-existing to Zhangfu acupuncture. And because it's in the Nanjing, you know, he was studying the classics and and the Japanese meridian therapy is totally based on the Nanjing. And he probably memorized the book, you know. And so that was his that was his foundation, you know. So it rhymed with what they were already doing in Korea. There was a fertile field for those seeds to take root. Totally. Totally. Because Korea wasn't exposed to what was happening in China that much. They were in civil war. They were in revolution. I mean, Korea was distant. And at that point, there wasn't Zongfu acupuncture in China because that came later. You know, we're talking, that's, that's a Republican era in China. And, and it, it worked on a different set of principles. Well, the Zongfu in China was pretty much dedicated to the um, herbalists. You know, the herbalists were who studied Zongfu and who created it, Zongfu. And it's a very ironic, you know, in the history of acupuncture in China, it's a very interesting story. In China, all the elders, Mao Zedong and his age group, were totally into Oriental medicine. This is what they this was what they used for healthcare. When the revolution came, Chiang Kai-shek banned acupuncture, banned traditional medicine. He was a Christian, he wanted German medicine, he wanted Western medicine. But on the long march, where Mao Zedong and his people were forced to flee from the coastal areas and deep into the north interior, all they had was acupuncture. They didn't even have herbs. They certainly did not have prescription medicines. So their whole healthcare relied on acupuncture. And so they're into it. The leadership, that whole generation was into acupuncture. If you're sick, that's what you use. They didn't even have herbs. So then when they create the People's Republic in 1949, the number two person after Mao was Zhou Enlai. And Zhou Enlai's wife 
was third, fourth, fifth, tenth generation Chinese medical doctor. Her mother was a Chinese medical doctor. She intended to be a Chinese medical doctor, but the revolution just totally destroyed that ambition. Anyway, her husband is the number two guy, and they decide they want to promote Chinese medicine as well as Western medicine. They want to modernize, but they want to keep old and new. So they decide they want to keep Chinese medicine, and they put her in charge. And by 1956, she created five, seven TCM schools around the country, and they put herbalists in charge. They put the herbalists in charge. They were the most established. And the herbalists said, well, if we're going to teach Chinese medicine, we're going to teach Zhang Fu. And there had been 30 schools of acupuncture in China. And the only ones that survived were the ones that made it to Hong Kong, made it to Taiwan, made it to Japan, made it to Korea, but it did not survive in China, not because it was suppressed, not because it was anti-government or anti-politics. It was just because the, the herbalists were in charge. And that's what they did. They did Zhang Fu medicine. So they said, okay, here's an acupuncture system that dovetails with that. We only have to teach one program. We now only have to teach one program and apply the acupuncture into the herbal model. You have kidney yang deficiency, here are the points to treat. You have kidney yin deficiency, here are the points to treat. And so that's what remained. It wasn't a conscious suppression. But all the channel therapy schools died. They died. It, only now is the Chinese doctors seeing what's out there. They're seeing Master Tong and they're seeing, you know, uh, Richard Tan and they're seeing alternative theories of channel therapy besides Zhang Fu. So now there be, there's interest in China now, for sure. But it's not like Japan, where Japan has a Zhang Fu approach, but they're very big into channel meridian therapy. So, so the Chinese got to run the school systems, the universities. The, it was a three-year acupuncture program. It was a five-year acupuncture and herb program. Meanwhile, Japan organized meridian therapy as a real program. But even in Japan, it was a late bloomer. It wasn't put together until the 1930s. You know, in the 1930s, this part of the wave of Japanese nationalism revival, the acupuncturists started this movement and it was called Remember the Classics. We remember the Classics. Okay. So there was Japanese marine theory was established. It was a little bit different than what Dr. Moon taught, but the, the essential idea was the same, balance the channels. Now, I say this because later on, I went to study other Japanese approaches to meridian therapy besides Dr. Moon. With Dr. Moon, I started self-studying about Chinese acupuncture. And I said, Dr. Moon, what about, you never talk about wind damp. You never talk about, you know, progression of six levels. You never talk about any of this stuff. And Moon says, uh, Oh, just because it was written in a book doesn't mean it's valuable. <laughs> you know, his whole thing was excess or deficient. What's the meridian status? You know, now we'll say about Moon that that he had studied applied kinesiology with the chiropractors and he was using it, and so he really impressed me that he could muscle test points and and actually with his fingers he could tell if a point was excess or deficient. 
And I said, wow, man, I hope I, I get that skill someday. And I have. Now, now I'm, I'm my own master of feeling points and knowing if they're excess or deficient. But that's all he cared about was excess and deficiency. He didn't care about damp. He didn't care about cold. He didn't care about heat. He didn't care about nothing. So anyway, that's the end of that aside right there. And Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I just want to jump in here with the thought that something as simple as excess deficient it can take you a long way. In fact, I'm, I'm going to just put a little tick mark next to Dr. Moon here. Whenever I get lost or confused in clinic, which is pretty often, like what's actually going on here? You know, you, you know, when you lose the scent of the trail, you think you know what's going on. And then all of a sudden you realize, I don't know what's going on here. The thing that I always go to that will bring me back to reorienting is, am I looking at excess or am I looking at deficiency? I come back to it every single time. It is a reliable compass for orienting in the clinic. Super helpful. Yes, I agree. I, I have a lot of articles on my website, and one's called Excess and Deficiency Coexisting. What do you do? And I always say prioritize the excess. Meaning get rid of the excess. Yeah, because if you, tell, if you prioritize the deficiency, you're going to make the excess worse. So clear the excess first. Get rid of the troublemaker. Yeah, especially with herbal medicine, but also applicable to Japanese acupuncture. Yeah. Okay. So you, you spend seven years studying with Dr. Moon. When do you start actually practicing? And how do you even decide when you're ready? And how do you find yourself some patients? There's no licenses. You don't have any. I charged for my first patient in 1978. So I've with Moon for two or three years, about three years. And I was working in a grocery store, like a, a predecessor to Wild Oats or Whole Foods. You know, this is a hippie grocery store in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm working there because I got to pay the bills, right? You're working at the co-op. Exactly. And Dr. Moon says, he was a, a teacher more than just acupuncture. He was really a life counselor for me on, on so many levels. He had so much wisdom. And he said, Okay, now it's time to stop your job at the grocery store and just do acupuncture. And I said, Dr. Moon, I'll starve. You know, right now I'm treating some friends on the side. It's, it's how do I pay my rent? He said, just do it. If you do it, the universe will support you. 
because that was his belief. He's a big believer in the universe will support you. And so I did, because I everything he told me to do, I followed blindly. I was devoted to this guy. And and I quit the grocery store. And I got a, I'm so embarrassed to say this, but this is true. In 1978, I was charging $10 a treatment. Okay. I don't know how that works out inflation-wise, but that's what my first bills were in, in a little bedroom, in my bedroom, in my house. And before I knew it, patients were coming in. You know, people needed this stuff. At first, it was the hippie Tai Chi people. But later on, it was farmers from the countryside. And, you know, farmers, they have a bad back. They got to get back to work. They can't take the take two weeks of bed rest. I mean, they can't do that. No. And you know, and you know what's great about farmers? They're incredibly practical. So if it if it helps, they're in. And if it doesn't help, it's like, all right, on to the next thing. There's no... You know, you don't you don't get like, oh, let's try this for ten treatments. Like, mm -mm, you you gotta you gotta nail it. That's right. And then they tell their friends, hey, there's this weird Jewish kid. They didn't know that. They didn't know what a Jew was in Wisconsin. <laughs> but there's this weird guy. He's got these needles, and it's helpful. Yeah. Well, my business grew. I mean, I started in '78, and that's the only thing I've done since, in a way, that and teach. You know. So. Was your schooling entirely with Dr. Moon, or did you end up at some school of acupuncture? I mean, eventually, I suspect you got a license, but what happened between $10 on your bed? That sounds bad, doesn't it? But there it is. And like being an actual, you know, card-carrying member of the Acupuncture Association. Yeah, well, I'm a, I have these certificates that call me pioneer, you know, because I got to tell you, I was one of the main forces that created the national exams. I'm one of the main forces that created the national. Oh, we can blame you for that, that exam. That's right. That's right. And later on, I was in charge of the continuing education. And, and uh, I required all teachers had to get continuing education from other teachers, not just themselves. They can't just put down their own teaching as, as CEUs. I got for that. I got flack for that from my yeah, from my best friend. He didn't want to take any continuing education. He taught so much, he just wanted his own credit. You know. But anyway, that's another story. In answer to your question, in 1978, after practicing, I joined a medical doctor who wanted me to join her. She was from India, and she did electrodermal testing, so she was on the fringe anyway. She brought me in, and we did a clinic together. And then after about a year of that, I got investigated. I got investigated by the Wisconsin board. 1979. Yeah, 78. It says 78 or 79. Somewhere in there. You get investigated. What, is, what does that mean you got investigated? I was investigated for practicing medicine without a license. The Wisconsin Medical Board brought me into a room and interviewed me. And they said, we don't know what you're doing. We don't know what this is. Oriental medicine. So I explained it to him and I explained my training and I said, I'm qualified to do this. This is not the practice of medicine. I'm not giving out prescriptions. I'm not diagnosing diseases according to your parameters. I'm treating injury and illness, but, uh, you know, in, in a non-harmful way. And I've been well-trained and they sat around in Wisconsin and they said, okay, we'll let you do it. But you, every patient you see has had to have seen a medical doctor for their condition prior to seeing you. We don't care who it was. But if they'd come in without having seen a medical doctor for their condition, you have to tell them they need to do that. And that was a fair exchange. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. And 
Fair enough. So that worked out, you know, and they gave me permission. 1978, they gave me permission to practice acupuncture. It was probably one of the first in the country outside. Of, you know, so anyway, I decided around 1978, I need more knowledge. I And then by then there was two schools on the map. One was the Nakazona School in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and one what's called the Kodatama Institute. And one was the New England School of Medicine, which had just started under Dr. Uh, Dr. So. Yeah, Dr. So. And actually, a lot of my colleagues of my era, my generation, study with Dr. So. So I applied to New England. I applied. I said, let me in. But then my practice was going so strong. I said, the hell with it. <laughs> I don't need this. <laughs> I'm a busy acupuncturist. Four years later, I get invited to start an herbal program at Midwest Center in Chicago, 1982. I go down there for two years. But then I get arrested down there for practicing medicine without a license. Oh, wait, you, you get arrested in Chicago? Taken out in handcuffs with TV cameras. Was that good for business by any chance? <laughs> Not really. I had to leave the state. <laughs> but they said, what, are the, what do you say to you're practicing medicine without a license? And I said, well, it's absurd. I'm not practicing medicine. And I said, there's not one medical school in the country that teaches acupuncture. If anything, I said, I'm practicing acupuncture without a license. And what Illinois needs is an acupuncture license, you know, to put in place. Oh, my God. Jake Frack in your quits, but... What a great answer. I'm not practicing medicine without a license. I might be practicing acupuncture without a license. <laughs> and they throw me in Cook County Jail. They throw me in Cook County Jail in handcuffs, you know, and they take away my shoelaces. I said, what do you think? I'm going to kill myself because I'm arrested for practicing medicine without a license. <laughs> so that was a great experience. But it, anyway, I hired a lawyer. Chicago being so thoroughly corrupt, this was one of the lawyers indicted for bribing judges later, and I'm sure he bribed my judge. And the judge threw out the case if I agreed to get out, just leave. Get the hell out of town. Go back to Wisconsin where they don't mind if you'd practice. Yeah, just, just leave, you know. So I left, and, and uh, that was my story. They ran you out of town. They ran me out of town. It wasn't on a rail and I wasn't tar and feathered, but I was run. And I made many friends in that experience, but that's what happened. That's what happened. And then I got, I started the herbal program in Seattle at John Bastier College. I started the herbal program there. And then I did that for two years. And, and then I was invited to start the herbal program at Southwest in Santa Fe. So I moved there and, and so on and so on. I kept Picking up herbs. By this time, herbs was my big interest. And how did you learn your herbal medicine? Well, at Midwest Center in Chicago, first of all, I was realizing I was not helping people who were very depleted. You know, acupuncture is good for moving energy around. But if you don't have energy, the only way to build energy, I think, is with direct moxibustion, the Japanese approach. But Chinese acupuncture is very sedating because the needles are very deep and they're very strong stimulation. And that's very sedating. And so if people are very weak in their energy, it's very hard on them. It drains what little energy they have. So I said, I have to find a way to build their chi. And I gravitated to diet, macrobiotic diet. This was back in Wisconsin. I gravitated to macrobiotic diet, meaning I was into it and I tried to get my patients onto it. And I found out very quickly, patients do not want to change their diet, period. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not going to happen. I mean, once it did help themselves, but very few were willing to do it. So 
So I said, this isn't working. Then I heard about herbs. I go, man, I got to learn herbs. So I go, when I was invited to Midwest Chicago, I went there and I apprenticed. There was a, a, a Hong Kong doctor who was giving classes on Materia Medica. And so he attracted a group of about eight of us. And it was all in Cantonese and his daughter translated. And the herbs were all had Cantonese names, which for someone like myself later on proved to be a pain in the ass, you know. Yeah, because now you got to relearn them in Pinyin or Mandarin or Latin or. I already spoke Chinese. I, I studied three years of Chinese at college, so I already spoke, spoke what I call Northern dialect, Beijing dialect, which they call Mandarin, which is a horrible name, and, uh, and but Guoyu is what the Chinese call it, national language. Well, it's it's also what the Taiwanese call it. Exactly. Yeah, but don't say Guoyu in China, or you'll get in big trouble. I can tell you that. Yeah. This was Dr. Lau had a Chinatown store and herb store. And I apprenticed with him three days a week besides the classes he was teaching, which was interesting. I hung out at his store and I watched, I learned a lot about the herb trade from watching, from being inside a Chinese herb store. Yeah. You were just, you were apprenticing. You saw it. You were in it. I was in it. So like they had all this stuff out under glass, the expensive stuff. And I said, what's this for? Who buys this stuff? They said, well, watch to see who buys it. And, and so there's a lot of sexual tonics, a lot of sexual tonics under the glass. And I said, who's buying this? It wasn't guys. It was their wives. Their wives were coming in and putting it in the soup. They were putting it in the soup, <laughs> into the kanji, and giving it to their husbands. I'm not kidding. It was a wife. It was a joke. So Dr. Lau was great. He was a face reader. He was old school herbalist, pulses, didn't speak a lick of English. His daughter had to translate everything. So that was a great experience. I did that for two years. And at the same time, studying there at Midwest, we got John O'Connor, who runs Eastland Press. If you don't know him or don't know him, he's not a practitioner of Chinese medicine. No, but he's had a massive influence on our profession through Eastland Press. Massive. It's like the silent partner of Chinese medicine. But his job was an immigration lawyer for Chinese. He was fluent in Chinese. Immigration lawyer for Chinese to come into America. That's his bread and butter. First in Chicago, later in Seattle. So he comes to us and says, look, I got this guy. I got a doctor from China who needs some sort of job so he can stay here on a green card. And can you guys offer him a job? So I look at his resume and went, oh, my God, this guy's top-notch Chinese herbalist, Guo, Guo, Dr. Guo. It's a top-notch um, Chinese herbalist. This is a tremendous opportunity. Let's get him in here. So we invite Guo to come in and teach. Now, Guo's English was terrible. So he used me as sort of a translator. And we created first a Materia Medica course. I had had Dr. Lau's course in Cantonese. I had everything that I could find to translate. And I would sit and help Guo, and we put together a material medical course. And then that evolved later into a prescription course, a formula course. So that's how I learned Chinese herbs, was at the elbow of Dr. Guo, Guo Jingan. He And he's still, he's in Chicago, he's extremely famous, original herbalist from Lanjo. His father was head of the acupuncture hospital, and he says, well, I can't compete with my father. I'm going to go into herbs instead of acupuncture. And he became to, acu to herbs what his father had been to acupuncture, just a master. 
master herbalist. To this day, his formulas astound me. They astound me. And, uh, and that's how I learned herbs, by teaching it. <laughs> by teaching it. Yeah. Your education with this, it, it didn't come through a school. It came through you following people, you, you having the great good fortune, probably because you had strong intention. You find these people, you learn some acupuncture, you find this person that you, you know, you help him stay in the country and teach and you end up learning because th this is what you're asking for. And man, are you getting it in heavy doses? Yeah. A lot of pulse reading. You know, he'd be on a pulse for like 20 minutes and I'd say, Dr. Gore, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing when you go in there for 20 minutes? He says, well, I know in the first couple of minutes the problem. But then I just want to rule out any other possibilities. <laughs> he was thorough. What was he looking for in those pulses? God knows. Let me ask it this way. What, what did you learn about pulse from him? Well, the whole, the whole spigili, the traditional TCM way of doing pulses. 28 pulses. Yeah. The 28 pulses. And... Uh, you can read about him, but but he would do a pulse, and he I'd say, what did you find? He says, this, this, and that. And I'd feel the pulse and go, okay, that's what this, this, and that looks like. you know. So I had a good training in pulse diagnosis. But he was a master. He had applications of herbs that to this day are not known by anybody else. You know, His formulas are so unique, and, but they're common herbs, but he would apply them differently than, than the mainstream. That's what makes for a great herbalist. Yeah, he, he's the best herbalist I've ever met. And I lived in China for a year studying with great herbalists, great herbalists, but Guo's in a class by himself. And he's still around. Is he still teaching? No, he doesn't teach. He just sees patients, you know, just sees patients. You said that you got involved with some of the national stuff, the national exam. It's interesting. I came into Chinese medicine, at least it's interesting to me. I came into Chinese medicine in the mid-90s. Uh, there was already a profession established, right? I mean, there was there was a path like you go to school and do your school, and then you graduate, and then you take your NCCA, and then you can get a license, and then you can do what Jake did. Um, so I had all that. You guys didn't have any of that. As I've been having these history conversations with folks, Jake, it it sounds as if I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds as if there was this energy that was just unfolding into our culture. And the profession kind of emerged and self-organized itself in a way. It did. And I was there through every step. Yeah. So give us the, the foot soldier's view of what happened. Well, the first thing that happened was the big influences on acupuncture at that time was really Dr. So up in New England. And you had uh, Worsley from England. At Trist, uh, what was this school called? It was called uh, the one in Columbia, Maryland. He had his school. You had Mark Seam in New York, who was doing his own thing, which was really based a lot on French acupuncture, because Mark lived in France and, and he was exposed to it there. And then you had the California influencers, which were all Asian, Korean, Chinese, Japanese. Okay, so you had these divergent groups that were very, you know, decentralized, but also very localized. California was not informing the East Coast. Dr. So was not informing the West Coast. The guy in New, in New Mexico was not informing anyone else, called Atomic Guy. So it was very divergent, you know. The ones who were taking all the air were Worsley people. 
The Worsley people, to me, it was almost cult-like in terms of the devotion of the practitioners to Professor Worsley. They just, every word he said, they hung on and just loved and, 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 and just got on, you know. So Worsley's making money. They're in suburban Maryland, outside of Washington, pretty affluent community. And later on, I disparagingly called, you know, Worsley acupuncture by the rich for, you know, by the rich for the rich, you know, and very expensive treatments and very patients became very dependent on them emotionally. It's sort of like the psychoanalysis sector of the acupuncture world. And they sponsored a national conference. We all came down. We were in teaching. The Worsley folks did a national conference. In Columbia. I think this is, this is what set it off. And I made some good friends there. The other big rebel rouser besides me was Stuart Cutchins, who was from California. He was very steeped in Korean acupuncture, very steeped in everything. He's an herbalist, a great practitioner. And we were both there. And, and, and we were annoyed that the Worsley people were so into this whole constitutional approach that they were, they just hated the idea of what they called, you know, symptom suppression or treating the branch, not the root. They were just totally unconstitutional diagnosis, you know. And there was a guy there, a practitioner who had his arbitrage cast. And I said, oh, are you doing acupuncture for that? He says, no, 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 we're just doing constitution. You know, that'll heal it. I said, are you kidding? I said, if you did some local treatment, it would heal a lot faster. No, 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 we don't do local treatment. We just do constitution. And I thought, this is nuts. This guy's a broken arm, and, and, but it's a removable cast. You could totally help this guy. And uh, Stuart Cutchins and I were kind of appalled by this approach, just appalled. And we said, look, there's got to be national standards. And we started having discussions. And, and I was the one who got up and said, look, we need national exams. We need a national exams, national curriculum. And that evolved into the Association of the Schools and the national exams. So this is in the early 80s that this starts going on. And uh, I got appointed to the accreditation commission for the colleges at first. We were trying to come out with a national curriculum, basically, and we had to decide. What are we going to teach? What's going to be on it? Yeah, we decided Zhang Fu is the way to go. You know, follow the Chinese model. They have the best textbooks. They have the best, you know, predecessors, the, the best teachers. Okay, but say, I'm, I'm so curious about this. Follow the Chinese model. But you didn't learn the Chinese model. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. <laughs> when I taught at Midwest, I had to teach the Chinese model. I, I understand. But you, you already had all this experience. You knew something of the power of acupuncture based on meridians and not Zhang Fu. So why the Chinese model? Uh, it was established. It was deep. They had the books. They had the teachers. They had the books. So, so there was a curriculum available. You just imported from China. Totally. And all the schools in California, and there were some really good ones, California Acupuncture College, Yosan. Well, Yosan came a little bit later, but uh, there's a lot of, you know, three or four or five TCM schools in California, San Francisco and L.A. They were kick-ass. They were great. They were great. And they were all doing the Chinese model because all their teachers were from China. So, so you're kind of swimming with the stream at this point. It's like we need to do something... Here's an established program of study. Here's an established way of doing things. So you went with it. Totally. And all these committees that I was getting on were mostly California people. 
Now, Worsley people populated all the committees also, Bob Duggan and, and so on. They populated all, all the committees. Sure, sure. They got a horse in the race. That's right. They always made sure they had, they had a toe in the water and because uh, they didn't want to be iced out. They, they're, they're great strategists. They're great corporate organizers. You know, it's really impressive. So we had a compromise. It was like you had to have to have both parties involved to have anything done. So that's that's how it got going. First, first the colleges, then the national exams. And I was very influential in the national exams, you know, the creation of the national exams, which really defaulted. The, the Worsley people did not have much say in the national exams. So it really defaulted to the Chinese model. And we still have that today. Yes. And and I, I, I'm all for let a hundred flowers bloom, but I'm also for have a foundation, and your foundation shall be TCM. That's your foundation. We can all agree upon. And the worstly people to get their licenses have to pass a TCM test, so they do crash courses in TCM in order to pass the national exams. And that's okay. It's like going to medical school and you decide to become a psychiatrist and you decide to become a Jungian psychiatrist. Well, you don't need to learn dermatology, you know, and you don't need to learn any of that stuff, but you learn it because then you have the foundation and you can go on and do your specialty, right? And I look at Worsley as a specialty postgraduate program. It should not be the foundation. You know, I have a lot of complaints about it as the foundation, but it's a very good specialty school. Just adds his Kodatama. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, I have certainly found over my time doing this, and especially the time that I spent in Asia, people would ask me like, well, you know, how was that school that you went to? Was it any good? And I'd be like, I don't know. It's the only school I ever went to. How would I know if it was good or not? What school? I went to Siam in, in the very early days, Seattle Institute of Oriental Medicine. That was Dan Bensky's school. Yeah. That's a really good school. I was in the second class. They weren't even accredited. It just, it looked like a good idea. They had a very good program. I, I liked their program. But people ask me, you know, is that school any good? It's like, I don't know. It's the only school I ever went to. How would I know if it's good or not? But I can tell you this. The foundations that we learned via TCM, whether you, whether you like it or hate it or whatever, you will learn the basic vocabulary and way of thinking of how Chinese medicine works. 
from there. It's like, okay, now you've learned your scales. Now you know where the notes are. You got some chords. What do you want to do with that? Anything you want. But there's some basics that are very, very fundamental and very useful. So that later, when I did do a little study with Dr. Tan, and he's talking about thinking about the channels instead of the organs, I can go, oh, I hadn't thought about that. But funnily enough, now that you mention it, I can see and understand what you're talking about. Totally. Totally. Of course. Yeah. The only thing that doesn't make sense to me is the master tongue system because it's so unique. It's very idiosyncratic. Yes, exactly. But I'm not saying it doesn't work. No, it, it works great. Look, there's people that that's how they that's what that's all they do. I mean, there's a lot of ways of thinking about how this stuff works. You should know that having studied with all the wild people you studied with. Yeah? I made myself study everything, every branch. I wanted to know what they were doing. And then I could decide if I wanted to use it or not. I learned everything. I studied with everybody. And it was fascinating. But I'd come out with very little. A lot of times I'd go to a workshop and I'd say, if I come out with one thing that helps me in clinic, it was worth it. And every time I would, there'd be one little thing that I'd take home with me. Do you know what changed Chinese medicine in America? The pivotal thing that changed it was Ted Kapchick's The Web That Has No Weaver. When he released that book, then everybody shifted gears. Everybody shifted gears into the next level, which was what his book was, was really a, a deep way of looking at TCM, at Chinese mainland TCM. It was a deep way of looking at it and understanding it and understanding it in a way that was more than just memorizing points and applications. You know, it was a game changer. It was a game changer, that book. It wasn't just the translated Chinese textbook. It was Chinese medicine through the eyes, heart, and experience of a Westerner who's explaining it now to the West. Yes. And he explained it really well. He grasped it intuitively. He was comfortable with it. It was like reading Jared Diamond or Yuval, what's his name? I mean, it, it just made it accessible. It was a story. He was a storyteller. And even to this day, that book holds up. It's a wonderful book on on. on. It does. When, when when people ask me, how would I know more about this? I'm I'm curious and interested. It's like, well, I can give you some very simple text, or if you want to go a little deeper, and they go, yeah, I want to go just a little bit deeper. It's like web that has no weaver. It's it's a great place to. It's where I started when I got interested. My acupuncturist said, read this book. And man, the first few pages, like, what the hell are they talking about? Wind, damp, you know, damp, heat, you know, heart, fire. Like, what the hell? I don't remember when it came out, but I know that I read it in the early 90s. And it was, it was, my, uh, it was my gateway book into Chinese medicine. Yeah, but that was a turning point for Chinese medicine. It really was, because then it sort of told the community, we're going to follow China's TCM model as our foundation. And everything else is on top of that. Now, the Worsley people never accepted that, which is a shame. And now they have to cram to pass the national exams. You know? That's okay. I mean, these days, people still cram for the test. And and I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on it. I mean, it's been years since I took that test, right? Decades. But I hear that these days there's a ton of biomedicine on there that used to not be on there, that people spend a lot more time now studying biomedicine than they did in the past. That's the part that people fail. But I get it. My son went to acupuncture school and so did his wife. They had to go through all that. 
I think it's important because I'm very biomedically inclined. So I, I think this is medicine that we're doing. You better know what the hell it means when a patient tells you he has something or a lab tells you it has something. I mean, because that's what we do. If you're going to work in a vacuum, you can do that with acupuncture. You know, you can be a great acupuncture and not know anything about biomedicine, but you cannot be a good herbalist without knowing a lot about Western medicine. So we really need at this point, from your point of view, we need to have a, a foot solidly in both of those worlds. I think so. But the trouble is a lot of acupuncture students in America don't want to learn Western medicine. They don't like it. It's a, it's a chore for them and it doesn't come easy for them. I had a student, uh, I was at a conference and I was saying this line of thought and somebody said, if I wanted to learn Western medicine, I would have gone into Western medicine. You know, I mean, I, I can understand that. I can understand that sentiment exactly. Well, my response is then just do acupuncture. Don't do herbal medicine. Because herbal medicine is based on diseases, Western diseases. You go to a good book from China on, on using herbal medicine, and they'll organize along Western diseases, you know, because it's easier to, to grasp it. You have a peptic ulcer. So what are the differentiations for peptic ulcer? But isn't that kind of a modern innovation in like from the communist era? Not, not saying the communists were, you know, bad trying to take stuff out, but it, it seemed like there was an evolution in that time where disease names became more important than, say, you know, presentation, just, you know, overall presentation? Well, you can get away with it if you divide it into differentiations. Yes, you have peptic ulcer, and here are the three common differentiations, which are TCM, for that condition. Stomach cold, stomach heat, stomach damp, whatever. Then when we get into the therapeutics of it, we go into TCM. You cannot treat peptic ulcer with herbs, unless you know what the differentiation is. Sure. Well, and even with acupuncture, you're still differentiating something so you know where to put a few needles. Not meridian therapy. But, but they're differentiating the, the meridian, aren't they? They're still working on where do I need to work to make this uh, problem change. Yeah, but you're just, in meridian therapy, you're just looking for excess and deficiency. It's just a two, two-pronged attack. It's not like herbal medicine is, is there heat, is there cold, is there dampness, is there dryness, and so on. With acupuncture, it doesn't matter. I mean, people make the case that it does, but I'm not so sure. You know, Japanese will say, well, if it's damp, do this, and if it's wind cold in the exterior, do this, but mostly not. Mostly just excess and deficiency. So simple, not necessarily easy. I mean, it takes a while to master, but still, yeah, I'm, I'm very... I'm really curious about this, Jake, that starting with just excess and deficiency, you could have a helpful career in acupuncture being useful to other people. Totally. That's what I did. <laughs> That's my history. I only did excess and deficiency my whole acupuncture career. Dr. Moon said, balance the meridians, clunk the telephone, you know. The real question is, how do you balance it out? Yes, I was wondering about that. So my question, well, several questions, really. How do you know which one is excess or deficient? And then using what methodology? That's the same question. <laughs> All right. Tell me more. Well, I cheat. I cheat. I use a computerized program to determine excess and deficiency. What? Yes. And I love it. And I can explain more why I use it because they have a certain menu in there that I can't do without it. But the traditional way is through the pulses, you know, 
feeling the different pulse positions and deciding which ones are excess and deficient that way. But I found that machine computerized diagnosis is much more accurate. It's just much more accurate and much more helpful. And I follow a, a system of acupuncture that was really based on Yoshio Monica and Mikishima that gets into treating divergent channel imbalances, gets into treating eight extra channel imbalances, and gets into treating primary channel imbalances. And it's very hard to do without a machine. The traditional way was Akabani making your points hurt with a piece of incense stick and 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 measuring it that way, eh, pain in the ass, and patients don't like it, and it takes too long, and blah, blah, blah. So I found a computerized program that incorporated all that teaching into their program, not as their main thing. It was off on the side. I found a buried menu. And I said, hey, do you guys know that you got this in there? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah. Someone said, if we're going to put together a program, we should include Mickey Shima stuff. Yeah, but we don't know what it is or how to use it. <laughs> I was blown. My gaskets were blown. I can't believe it. With this computerized device, I can get this in minutes or seconds instead of 20 minutes, you know. I can get this. And, and it's revolutionized my practice. And you don't have to burn your patients at the tips of their fingers. Exactly. That's a horror story. <laughs> That's a horror story. But Dr. Moon did it by muscle testing. He'd muscle test his own fingers at the site of the points to see if they were excess or deficient. And I do that also. But the machine's really handy. Yeah, but if my machine's on a blink, I'll just diagnose by muscle testing. Machine is very handy. So you figure out what's deficient. Yeah. Well, then, then the question is, well, now what? You got to prioritize. So in, in classical meridian therapy, you, you highlight what's called uh, the primary, it's called the show, which is the primary imbalance. And it's usually one of four yin organs that's primary. It's going to be a kidney deficiency or a liver deficiency or a lung deficiency or a spleen deficiency. And they, classically, they don't- They leave out the heart. The heart, yeah. But I do. I think there can be a fundamental heart deficiency. And then there's ways to fix that. Now, when you get into Monica and Mikishima, they're taking it into a deeper level. And they you have to do now special point combinations to fix it. So you're familiar with the eight extra channel connections. Mikishima's and his people found that there's actually 12 extra channel connections, not eight. And then there's the divergent connections, which connect yin and yang organs in the interior. And they're done with local and distal points. So they're combinations. And Monica, he used ion pumping cords to move excess to deficiency. And that's what I do. I'm an ion pumping cord guy. I take ion pumping cords and I move excess to deficiency. It's very efficient. Are you using the coupled points or, well, I guess if, it, I guess if it's eight extra, but if it's not eight extra, let's just say you've got a, let's just say you've got a lung deficiency. Yes. Well, the classical approach to that, not using Monica's approach, is you treat the primary channel and you treat its mother. So if you have a spleen deficiency, you'll tonify spleen and you'll tonify heart. So it's a mother-child. Classical non-jing. I forget the chapter number, but it's... 69. There you go. Six, listen, I'm like an evangelical Christian. I can, you know, quote text and, you know, text and quote, but only from one chapter. <laughs> Look, everyone's got their favorite chapters. I'm a non-Jing 59 guy and a guy. I'm a chunk with number two Corinthians. You know? So, <laughs> wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. So are you using ion pumping cords at this point to treat a uh, deficient lung? 
everybody. I want to know not only what's sufficient, but what's the main excess. So by seeing what the main excess is, then I can uh, I can choose. Richard Tom put it together, and I took his stuff of how to combine points or meridians when they're one's high and one's low. And, it, and there's six different ways to do it. So when I teach, I, I teach this chart. Look for highs and lows and balance those, you know. But there's priorities in balancing. There's definite priorities who, who you would choose. Okay, so you're hooking people up with ion cords, not on the eight extra coupled points. You're actually looking to promote the flow of chi from excess to deficient using the cords. Well, the result is that, but we are using eight extra points, traditional points, and we are using traditional divergent channel combinations. And we're also using traditional mother and son and control cycles on the primary channels that aren't covered. And they all get iron pumping cords on them. Yeah, but to be honest, in that treatment, we, we do the eight extras, which will involve two pairs of eight extra cha- eight extra combos. We're doing eight points on the divergent imbalances on four divergent pairs. Wait, are you doing this all in one treatment? And it's fast. And then if there's any primary channels that have not been covered in that scenario, we'll treat those too with mother-son. Oh, that's interesting. It sounds like a lot of points, but it isn't. It's, it's fast. It's not so slow. <laughs> yeah. I have videos of me going through this system if anybody's interested. Are they on your website or where, where, do, you, where do folks go for that? In my website. Or just look up, yeah, they're YouTube and they're there. Okay. Go, go look for them. You all know how to use a search engine. It's complex for sure. And it's laborious. It, I, I, it takes me a while to do it. I can't do these, these, uh, these, these uh, structural clinics where you get three people in an hour. You know, I spend an hour on each patient. Although I could do the central balance in 45 minutes, but I keep them for an hour because I usually like to work the back also. Wow. It's not a big money-making practice because I'm doing one person every 45 to 60 minutes. Yeah, well, you know, at this point, you probably don't want to work much faster, do you? No. At my age, I like what I'm doing. My patients like what I'm doing. And also, I'm an herbalist, so 25% of my income is herbs. So it's not just acupuncture. If you don't have herbs to sell, then you got to work harder, you know, see more patients. It's good to have multiple streams of income, regardless of what it is you're doing. If you're self-employed, it's good to diversify a bit, have different streams of income, really important. This podcast thing of yours probably just brings in a fortune. Oh yeah. I just bought a BMW. Let me tell you. Yeah, no. Um, it'd be nice if it brought in a fortune, but you know, at least it, uh, no, it's doing what you want, and you're doing a service. It lets me get away with doing what I want, and that is a blessing in this life, to be able to do what you want and help people. Exactly. High five, man. That's what it's about. I have a really good reputation by practitioners of where to learn stuff. Interesting podcasts. You know, the acupuncture world loves your stuff. You know, my daughter-in-law turned me on to you. <laughs> life is funny. Wow. Well, you've had a long, strange trip. Let me tell you. I mean, I don't have to tell you. You already know that. Sounds like you appreciate it as well. I had my ups and downs. I couldn't get licensed in Washington State. I couldn't get licensed in New Mexico. Why not Washington? Why not Washington State? Long story. Long story. But I couldn't pass exams, and then they stopped the exams. All right. Well, we'll just we'll just leave it to the side then, because. And I got arrested. You know, spent time in jail for, I was spent time in Cook County Jail with the bros. 
you know, for practicing medicine with a license. Yeah, convicted felon, not convicted. You because you got off with a judge who, with a attorney who bribed judges. Oh my God, two hundred dollars. You know, two hundred dollars. These judges are cheap in Chicago. You know, <laughs> <laughs> not like they're going down for a for a, a trip to the Cancuns. You know. Oh my gosh. So, where you are today? I mean, it sounds like you're in a great place. You love your work. You've had a, a fantastic career. You've helped a lot of people. You've helped a lot of people learn too. That's wonderful. What do you see at this moment in time as a challenge to our profession that we need to focus some attention on? Now, the biggest problem is that the medical profession doesn't accept us. And the reason they don't accept us is twofold. They don't accept acupuncture because they don't believe in acupuncture meridians or acupuncture points. And they don't accept herbs because they don't have uh, <clears throat> clinical evidence that substantiates the, the successes or the claims that herbalists make. So this, to me, this is the biggest problem to the profession. Why are they giving uh, dry needling to physical therapists but won't do a referral to an acupuncturist? Patients ask me, what is dry needling? I said, it's acupuncture without training. I, I tell them, I'm telling them it's acupuncture with a weekend of training, a little bit of training, acupuncture with a little training. They've had two weekends. Don't short circuit them. They, they've had two weekends on their training. And, and it's sad. The medical profession won't throw us a dime because they don't believe in chi. They don't believe in meridians. And that's what we do. You know, now, fortunately, the public does believe. That's why our profession is so frigging successful without the support of institutionalized medicine is because it works. It helps people. People come. We're not taking advantage of people. We're not hypnotizing them. We're helping them. And that's why they come. And that's why they come back. You know, I tell my patients, come in once a month just to get balanced. It'll boost your immune system and keep you healthy. And they do. And they say, you know, since I've been doing this, I don't have allergies anymore. My energy's good. Sleep is good. You know, it's it's a tremendous contribution we could make, but the medical profession is totally uninterested in us. And they won't be interested. I asked a, a, a medical student, why won't doctors support acupuncture? And they said, they, because they have to be a patient themselves or their spouse has to be a patient. Every medical doctor that likes me, it's because I treated their wives or their husbands successfully. You know, it's the only way is they become patients themselves and experience it. So if, if we're not really going to be able to really become part of that system, is there another path that we can take? Or what do, what do you see as a, a way forward? The one we're taking, independence. Insurance companies are, are ratcheting it up to cover us. And uh, Medicare is about to ratchet it up, although that won't do anybody a favor because they'll pay too little to make it worth their while. But um, but it's it, what we're doing is what we're doing. We actually are in a class like, you know, chiropractors and, and massage therapists. Medical doctors hate chiropractors. They hate chiropractors worse than they hate acupuncturists. But chiropractors have are much better politically organizing than acupuncturists. Well, they've been around a little longer, too. They've had more time to get their game together. They make sure the insurance companies pay for them. They cover Medicare. Medicare covers chiropractic. And, and that keeps them busy. You know, acupuncturists here... But what acupuncturists, I think, can do for themselves, I think, is study as much Western biomedicine as possible. If someone comes in with a pharmaceutical and you don't know what it is, look it up. Just on the spot. Just look it up. See what it does and how it hurts you and helps you. Because a lot of times they need those Western medicines. Well, and sometimes the issues that they come in with 
are the side effects of a Western medicine for something else that maybe they didn't even tell you about. And, and so it's really helpful to know what are you looking at and is this something that you can help with? Well, maybe the issue is whatever they're taking the medication for, that's what you need to help them with because then the side effects will go away as the medicine goes away. That is correct. I agree. And these days it's easy to, to look that stuff up. I and mean, when, I, when I first got out of school, you know, we, the internet was just beginning. We didn't have all the great stuff online and apps on a phone or something like that. But there was a thing, it, it was a book. It was the Nurse's Guide to Pharmaceutical Medicine or something like that. And it wasn't, it wasn't the physician's desk reference. It was the nurse's. And what was in that was what the medicine was, what it was for, side effects to look out for, and how it was metabolized in the body. So I found this really helpful because I could very quickly learn something about the medication. But the thing that blew my mind is under the course of actions, why it works the way it does and under how it was metabolized in the body, usually they would know how it was metabolized. But sometimes like why the thing works, it was like unknown. They're prescribing things. They know how it's metabolized. They know what the side effects are. They know what it can be helpful for, but like why it's helpful. They didn't, they didn't know many times they did, but there were times they didn't know. And I'm thinking to myself, I've got an idea of why these herbs are working or I wouldn't prescribe them. And we hear all this stuff in West, you know, conventional Western medicine. Well, we know what these pharmaceuticals do. Well, sometimes they don't. That's what the nurse's practical guide taught me. And it, and it really helped me to, how do I say this? Be able to talk to my patients about Western medications without coming off all high and holy. But like, you know, you're doing this and it, it's helping you like this and it's not helping you like that. And well, well, let's work with that. You know, if you're interested and often people would, they would take that as an invitation. Yeah. Well, you're doing what I'm recommending for the profession. Study biomedicine. Learn more, not less. Find out what the medicines are doing. Find out what the condition is. Find out what the prognosis is on the condition, with or without medicine. A lot of times it's not good prognosis, even though it's been diagnosed. It's horrible prognosis. And then because, you know, a doctor called me up because he said, one of your patients came to me and said, you had great success with blah, blah, blah. So I like to refer patients to you. So what are you good at? And I said, Look, if it's easy for you, it's easy for me. If it's hard for you, it's hard for me. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. Easy stuff is going to go away, and the hard stuff's not going to go away or go away slowly. He liked that. But doctors don't care about us. They just don't care about us. And a lot of them are actually quite hostile. So it depends where you are. My community, there's so much acupuncture that the doctors are all comfortable with it, basically. They all know somebody that's been helped. It doesn't have a horrible... You're not in isolation here. Probably in California, it's the same kind of story. You know, the California hospitals are using acupuncturists and so on. I mean, it's very advanced there. Seattle's like that. I mean, there's there's places where it's for sure making inroads. I, I think because of what you said, uh, it's helpful. Patients want it. You know, and hospitals are businesses. You want to give people people what they want. But the uppy-ups in the Western medical world are evidence-oriented. And if they don't see the evidence, they don't go for it, period. You know, it's like during COVID, they, uh, people were using ivermectin and the FDA 
say no evidence on ivermectin. Don't use it. But the reason people were using ivermectin is because they were using it in India to really good effect. And ivermectin is basically an antiparasitic. And when I use herbs against COVID, they're also antiparasitics. You know, so so yeah, it makes total sense ivermectin. But the evidence in India was this stuff really is working. You should use it. And a lot of Western doctors were using ivermectin because of that. But FDA would not accept it because the evidence was not up to our national standards. It's not that they weren't up. It just weren't done. They didn't have evidence. And if they don't have evidence, they're not going to use it. Right? So, you know, I I told the drug company, look, go to China and take... Chinese herbs against a known antibiotic that you know affects the antibiotic. And just look at urinary tract infections or strep throat and just compare the herbs. And you'll see, then you'll know if it works or not. You don't have to do a whole research thing. No, no, you, you can for sure do a, uh, what do they call that? A gold standard study. Take the gold standard of what you use to treat UTIs with, antibiotically take, and then use, you know, whatever you're using on the Chinese medicine side, and then just look at the results. It's actually not a hard study to do. Not at all, but they don't, there's no, the pharmaceutical companies don't pursue it because there's nothing in it for them. That's a whole other discussion. Yeah, but that's why we don't have evidence is because no one's paying for it. Get NIH to pay for it. If you go online and you, I do this all the time, a condition comes up and I'll go online, Chinese herbs for blah, blah, blah. And scientific articles will totally pop up, usually from China, but in translation, in published journals that are in English. And there's always stuff I always learn, you know, I always learn, hey, they're doing this and that really looks interesting. And and I'll make a formula based on what the research said. And so there's a lot of research, but it's not coming out of the United States. And the United States is so devoted to their own generated research. They might take England. They're not taking France. They're not taking Germany, Norway. They're only taking America and England. And, And that's it. They don't look at Japan or China. Yeah. Well, you know what? I suspect we can look at this as a problem or we can look at it as an opportunity. All troubles are also opportunities. And especially if you're just starting out with your career, like find a problem you want to aim at, have at it, help people. Well, I tell people, recent graduates specialize and let people know you specialize. Find something you like to do and you're good at gynecology, pediatrics, orthopedics, whatever. And just dive into that, dive deep, you know, and let people know you treat that. You let people know you are helpful with prostate, you will get patients. You know, you let people know you're good with infertility, you will get patients. For sure. Yeah, there's plenty of suffering that we get to help with. That's right. And we do. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm coming back again to uh, what you said in the beginning. If you help people, you'll make a living. That's right. That's right. They'll come. To you. They will come. Jake Fratkin, you convict you. Thank you so much for the time today. This is this has really been it's been fun. It's been illuminative, and uh, man, we got some wild roots to our medicine. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's just my own personal story. You talk to someone like Peter Eckman, you'll get the whole spagili. Well, we'll get a different spagili. Look, everyone. Th- this is why I enjoy these conversations. Anyone who was there in these early days, I mean, you guys, like, what were you focused on and what was motivating you? It, it, it you know, it wasn't like I, I got this profession that I'm doing because there wasn't a profession at that point. There was this really weird medicine that caught your attention and you learned it well enough to help people. 
and just kept going. Yep. My first patient was in 1978. $10. <laughs> <laughs> Always room for improvement, huh? When I was living in China, I made money by doing acupuncture and herbs for foreigners that didn't want to be treated by Chinese. And I was charging 10 yuan, you know, which is even less than $10. Oh, yeah. That's like, God, at that point, it's like, what, a buck 280 or something. That's what I needed for a day's worth of food. There you go. Food and board. So if I did a couple of treatments, I could pay my, my, my rent. Okay. Listen, it was nice talking. It's been a pleasure. Until next time. Our destiny is created by the many small decisions that seem to take us forward in any particular moment. I suspect that destiny is not a magnet that draws us, but rather the inertia of many small decisions made in an inquisitive and playful way. It's the cumulative effect of small acts of courage that becomes a calling over time. It's impossible in the beginning to know where any decision might lead, as uncertainty goes hand in hand with creation. Jake followed his interests from biology to photography to martial arts and eventually to acupuncture. You too likely have a seemingly random set of experiences that turned out to be the stepping stones that brought you into the work that you do today. And something I've noticed over the years, while it may at times seem like we've left something formative behind, nothing gets thrown away. There's room to include everything that you've been through. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.